Shopamaniacs. You're listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Shop Podcast, all about front-end web design and development. I'm Dave Rupert, and with me is Chris, about to cough it out clear. <laughs> Coughing yeah. right at the beginning oh my of the God, show, I'm like, dude. I'm like, everybody, I'm going to do a huge cough. I'm going to hit the mute button, and then it was the record button. So here we are, everybody. Welcome to a lovely hey, who Thursday. who we got in the studio today, Chris? Samira Capilla. Sam Cap on Twitter. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are y'all? Are you doing okay? Do you need some water? I might need some water. No, I'm doing okay. I had some. I had a little, little, little back trouble, but it's a seventy-one percent better today, thanks to the power of pharmaceutical research. <laughs> Our um, sponsors today are. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I laughed a little too Try loud. Try Zorbatec. <clears throat> Uh, may give you diarrhea, uh, constipation, and uh, a third leg. But good luck. I so. I don't know if we're playing like, is this a pharmaceutical or is this a web framework? <laughs> Ooh, that's good. Turbo pack. Uh, <laughs> uh huh. That's They're good. Just really efficient steroids. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, th- you, we have you on the show because we've been colleague, you know, you know, colleagues from afar for for a long time. You've been, in, you know, we kind of came up together in the in the web industry. I'd say you're in Austin too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. And and you know, it'd be amazing to have you on the show at any time at all. But you have a new book out as well, the la- very latest, a book apart book, number forty two, in a beautiful. What would you call that? Almost like a light teal, mm-hmm. inclusive design communities. It's a special color, isn't it? Sam? It is, yeah. It's uh, inspired by the uh, the ocean shelf drop off color that you see in Curacao, since it's a volcanically formed Caribbean island where I grew up. Um, and there's just such a deep drop in whatever the diving terms are, like atmospheres and whatever. But the like perfect Caribbean water color is that color. I mean, we we eye dropped it, and <gasps> that's really? how we got there. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, that's way cooler than mine. But I have a story too, and I'm going to tell it because I feel compelled to now because your story was so mine. cool. Yeah, then yeah. you do yours. <laughs> that my blue because my I have an book of bar color and it's also blue. But it's a very different blue. It was I dropped from if you know if you open a, a Adobe Illustrator and you like draw a guide out or you click on a a vector element and it shows like the outline of the element in blue. Mm-hmm. The vector that. That blue is the blue of my book, which was kind of a nod to just vector art in general, you know. That's awesome. Not as cool as a volcanic drop-off shelf. Yeah, that's a <laughs> uh, power move. That's uh well had, had to represent the hometown. Yeah, that's awesome. Very nice. So, uh, Sam, your book is Inclusive Design Communities. Give us the elevator pitch. Why should I read it? Why do I even care? <laughs> read it because I wrote it, Dave. I know, that's eighty percent of the reason right now. But <laughs> it's it's been really interesting, and both of you have known me for uh, the majority of my my time in Texas, which is I moved here um, to go to grad school and thought I was going to do the art direction thing, and that you needed a master's to to get there. This was around the Mad Men era. So like that was the ideal thing. And, um, Mm. and you learn a lot about, um, Pentagram and all of those big ad agencies. And I moved from Florida It was offered in-state tuition with the caveat of you should teach in the undergrad program and you only need nine master's credits to 
teach an undergrad. So UTA for the first semester, since I was full time, I got the nine credits and start going down that route. I met folks like Dave pretty soon after at meetups, was seeing a big disconnect between what Dave and others were doing and what was being taught in schools. And that actually opened up a lot of conversations about that gap. And then I, throughout my career, have moved from teaching at a university to teaching at a code school to moving into management to working with the Obama White House on national initiatives to suddenly leaving education completely and going back to being an individual contributor who then went into management. And I just continued to see these gaps. It was very much, and I've said this every time I've talked about the book, it is that meme of Charlie Day and Always Sunny where he's got like the red string connecting all of these things. And I felt like that, like there's, there's these things that I see that if we just did this, if we just did that, we could bridge a lot of these different gaps or um, open a lot more doors because there's just a lot of barriers to entry. So that's really where this came from. That, this was a really long elevator. No, it <laughs> no, was, that was amazing. <laughs> yeah. I've been, I have your book right here uh, it, along with my orange <laughs> Crayola that you highlighter, still have your <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's not really a highlighter, so it's... <laughs> Anyway, uh, I'll have to show you sometime. I really made a mess of this book, but I don't care. Love I'll it. highlight any book I want. That's There's, what it's for. You identify all sorts of educational gaps in this, sometimes drawing from your own experience and sometimes, you know, from your research. You're extremely well read. My gosh, this is full of just amazing uh, uh, excerpts and things. From Every third word has like a link to like a, a <laughs> the book apart. Yeah. Believe yeah, it or not, good. that's after editing. So imagine yeah. how many there were early <laughs> right. on. Um, I'm a link hoarder. Like if there's ever a TV show about hoarders, but the online version, I would not, I would not fare well. I, I know a guy who makes those shows. We could make it happen. That's... <laughs> just send in Marie Kondo, who's just like, does this link spark joy? And I'm going to say yes to everything. Dude, Marie Kondo <laughs> and me walking through my hard drive would be embarrassing. Just, just <laughs> horrific. Horrifying. <laughs> oh my gosh. You should do it though. That mean that that's proof that it should be done. This is a receipt for a hamburger. <laughs> Here's a moment from your own education and early career. My design education had focused on the specifics of the software rather than how to think critically about my own work. You're talking about your first job out of school and you were taught specifically in InDesign, and then all of a sudden you'd get this job in there in Quark, and that was a gap. That was an educational disconnect between, you know, you, you weren't taught the why, you were taught the how or something like that. Can you talk mm -hmm. about that? Yeah. Uh, for the first six months of that job uh, was trying to almost every evening, because I like begged them for a copy that I could take home and practice on my computer, was writing down notes on like, okay, this is how you do it in InDesign. This is how you do it in Quark. Okay, at, in Quark at that time could not preview anything that you exported in color. It would work out that way when it went to, you know, Food and Wine magazine or whatever else, because this was advertising for um, the Miami Heat and uh, like a all-inclusive resort chain in the Caribbean called Couples Resorts. It's like a sandals competitor. Mm -hmm. And so that was a lot of the work that I was working on. And that's that's just kind of like limitations or differences between the program that you had to wrap your mind around. But I mean, a lot of other things like bleed and, and like pre-press stuff was similar, 
but there was just such right. a change in it became less about the software to at least overcome that software difference. I had to kind of take a step back and think about what is the thing I need to do? Okay, this is bleed in InDesign. So what does that mean for Quark? And so there was, I think, a lot of like back and forth between the conceptual piece of what that thing means and how it manifests in different software. And what's interesting about that experience is I think a lot now of the Illustrator, Photoshop to Sketch to Figma pipeline and how that's just so much of a softer landing. The first Adobe collection of things really opened it up for Sketch and there were things that carried over. And then Figma Mm -hmm. sort of was like, let's take the things that are good. Let's get rid of everything (laughs) else that we don't need. Um, And it makes the barrier of those things a lot easier now. I think it just felt scary at the time because it's like, you owe this at the end of the month to the printer and it'll be printed once and that's what's in a nationally distributed magazine. Get Mm. it right. (laughs) Yeah, the like threat there was very high. Like just you kind of had one shot, you know, to the tune of, I mean, we even did like Reagan and I started in like real estate making brochures and websites and sending those out, you know, and I mean, you mess up a postcard, you're like 25K out, you know, like Mm -hmm. (laughs) for like, because you have to order whatever, 100,000 postcards or whatever. So There's no... uh deploys in in print no no <laughs> yeah can just fix something god i love that about the web you know it's just two seconds away a little boop oh fixed it don't worry about it this though leads into this moment they're like not to you know to crap on your teachers that were that taught you you know in design instead of cork or whatever but the i think the point you're trying to make is what if i just learned what bleed was or how to solve problems generally maybe that would have landed better i mean not to put words in your mouth but but you go on to talk about this moment with pick you know you like ask ethan you know how should i teach images or something and and he's like, well, try picture fill. And you go to teach picture fill and have some kind of problem or something. And you're like, actually, you know what? Let me just stop, step back and show you why I'm teaching you to picture fill because mm-hmm. it was recommended by this person. These are who, these are the people that I asked. This is the answer that I got. This is the GitHub repo for it. Let's just step through that and turn that into the teachable moment instead of just like, let me teach you the specifics of picture fill, yep. you know, which is cool. It's like a, I don't know, you know, teach a student how to fish kind a moment. Yeah. And I don't blame the educators on this because having been on that side, it is incredibly difficult to fit everything about design into a four-year curriculum, which you would think that's plenty of time, but it barely scratches the surface because you have to spend so much time just going over visual basics like line and shape, negative space, composition. And you have to like like web stuff was always this like afterthought in CS or in design. It's like the one class you take on the side. Mm -hmm. The same is true for everything else. You have to take painting, you have to take drawing, you have to build the like visual literacy first. And then you're taught software so that you can start to use those things. But it almost doesn't leave enough time to now say, great, you've learned all of this stuff. But what does it actually mean? And I think some courses get into that in the senior year, but it's almost like you're scratching the surface and then it's time to graduate. Mm. And I think there's another thing of, I think it's a institution related thing. I don't think it's like an educator specific thing of, we have an understanding of school being this thing that you're graded on. And what becomes your motivation is a grade rather than the critical thinking part. 
your motivation is I have to get an A so I can get a scholarship or I have to get an A so I can get a job. That starts in kindergarten. Yeah. <laughs> That's not something that universities are solely responsible. It's for the idea that a classroom means that your end goal is to survive by beating out everybody else and getting the best grade. And so I kind of blame that a lot more. That's interesting. And it's, you know, it's hard enough to give a grade, but I, I, I know I've had some friends who've taught at universities that kind of through that, you know, I don't know if they're experimental universities or what, but they don't have grades, you know, that you just mm -hmm. get like a, you get like a paper from the student on you, which seems like better output. I don't know how compatible that is with getting a job at Wells Fargo or whatever, because be like, look, my teacher said I'm smart or whatever. But it puts a lot of onus on the teacher then, right? Can you imagine, you know, giving a grade is hard enough at the end of the year, writing a paper on each student is, is extra difficult, I'm sure. But maybe that's what you pay for at these fancy small universities. Uh, what, else, what else should we talk about here? There's so many cool moments in the, in the, in the book. I like the, <laughs> I get stuck on one page. I have so many highlights in the book. <laughs> There's one where you, where you, where you talk about groupthink that I thought was really cool. Cause I feel like I've experienced both sides of this on our, on our, <laughs> for, on Twitter, for example. And you're talking about the, the font comic sans, which is everybody's favorite font to crap on or papyrus is a classic one too. But you specifically talk about Comic Sans and how, you know, it's overused and, but, but do you hate it because you hate it or do you hate it because everybody around you likes to dunk on it too and dunking on it makes you part of the in crowd almost and that, that moment is groupthink, but there's a kind of a problem with that, right? Yeah, there's a huge problem with that. And I think I was guilty of it at that time too. I mean, um, at, there were a lot of, um, CDRs being burned at that time that people were sharing a bunch of fonts that they got from whatever means that they did. CDRs, <laughs> like a literal, a physical CD that you... Oh, okay. yeah. With yeah. just like a folder, a zip file full of fonts and everybody installs it right away. Font book freezes, your computer memory craps <laughs> out. No one tells you that part. No one wrote that on the label. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's all these like things that like fonts that are like, oh, these are the must-have. These are the Friar Jones, the like the the big names that we couldn't afford as college students. And then it's almost like the system fonts kind of took a beating for that. That, oh, well, they were there, then they can't be good because there's this other thing that we wish for. And there was also, it felt like, and maybe this isn't everybody's experience, but it felt like you're a better designer because you have those particular fonts. And that's not necessarily true what we know about fonts, you can do plenty with the system version of Helvetica and, and all of those times your right. movement is readable and requested by professors uh, for a reason, right, it's legibility. Right, right. And I think that Comic Sans, Papyrus, a couple of those system fonts were crapped on because there was this little bit of what it means to be a good designer. And there's this underlying tone of the more things that you own or illegally own or have access to, the better you are. Um, and that's not necessarily true. And then there's the other part of legibility studies that have been done with Comic Sans and how pictorial memory in younger kids, or their memory is more tied to pictorial rather than something they read. So the shapes of the letters help them remember more. And because it's more uniquely shaped from letter to letter, kids remembered something that they read in Comic Sans versus Times New Roman. Our association with Times New Roman, for example, is more authoritative, academic, 
um, you know, there's just connotations that typefaces have. And we, we sort of said that one's too immature. It's not like the right one. And it's just, it just feels silly now to think about. But I also remember at that age just being like, yeah, I'm supposed to hate this one because everybody else is. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting too. It's like, that's just off font, right? Like <laughs> of millions. And uh, we've collectively somehow decided that's the worst one. But then like that goes into other technology choices or even like you get to in your book, like design programs. It's like, oh, you went to that school or you went to that boot camp. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that means you're bad at it or something. So there's kind of, I don't know, we kind of build these group tropes sort of, right? Yeah, and it's like you have to use the latest new thing for it to be good. Um, and there's there's plenty of typefaces out there. Use whatever makes sense. Like, sure, I'm not going to use Comic Sans if I'm designing something for Star Trek. Like, yeah. that feels like a disconnect of what the font is intended for and what the show is intended for. But everything has a use case. There's a reason it was created. And if that allows someone to be more creative or create their first comic book, then by all means, if it helps them make signage that helps kids understand, you know, in second grade ways to share in the classroom, great. We don't have to crap on it just because it's not what we need. You don't need to walk into the elementary school and be the design critic. Um. <laughs> that's that's a TV show we don't need. I could I could be that. Uh, maybe that is my new TV show. That's my... <laughs> I just, Dave Rupert, elementary school design critic. This podcast is brought to you by Split, the feature management and experimentation platform. What if a release was exactly as how it sounds? A moment of relief, an escape from slow, painful deployments that hold back product engineers. Free your teams and your features with Split. By attaching insightful data to feature flags, Split helps you quickly deploy, measure, and learn the impact of every feature you release, which means you can turn up what works and turn off what doesn't and give software innovation the room to run wild. Now you can safely deliver features up to 50 times faster and exhale. Split feature management and experimentation. What a release. Reimagine software delivery, start your free trial, and create your first feature flag at split.io slash Shop talk. Well, I want to get to the hiring, but while we're talking about fonts, there's some other fun font stuff. Uh, 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 Well, this one's the opposite of fun in a way, because it's it's talking about, you know, your own education. And it made me reflect on my education, too, and just, just how, like, you know... America, Europe centered at all was like, if I learned about a designer, it was like a white dude for sure. Or even, even painters and, and, and stuff. There's a, this is a line as a student, I could name more of Massimo Vignelli's preferred fonts than I could female designers. What a good line and point about that. We were just how scoped all that stuff is to, I don't know, it just it just doesn't feel right. And it's not because there's not examples, you know, then you go on to prove it and just list example after example of what we could have been learning, which would have been a lot more diverse and interesting than what we actually did learn. Yeah, that's something I didn't have the words for at that point. It's only something I think I've understood in the last five years. 
of just how much there was to unlearn of like what makes good design. Like half of these books behind me in red, and yes, I'm one of those designers that does the color coding of bookshelves, <laughs> are Swiss typographic design style, international, you know, Bauhaus. It's, it was so specific and that's what was drilled into my brain as good design. And a little bit of that is professor preference, but that's true for a lot of the industry too. And it's, there's just so much left out of the conversation that in school, I didn't know why I couldn't connect to a lot of things until about five years ago. And that there just wasn't that representation that I could see. I think I went and looked back at the movie Helvetica and I think um, Paula Shear is like the only woman that they interviewed in the entire movie that I can think of. There may be one more, um, but like even something like that is so strange to look back at now. Right, right. But if you're me and you watch it, you'd be like, this is so comfortable. Look at all the me's on the TV. (laughs) That's right? me with the uh, with gray hair. That's me with very skinny. That's me with mm. yeah. I love so these there's, me's. There's me. I'm gonna read design of everyday things again. Um. All right. <laughs> I do. I, I do have a Paula Share story. Uh, weirdly, I was at uh, Beyond Teleround and I was like speaking there, and uh, and then they're like, okay, who's coming? And, and Paula shares there. And I'm sitting next to her at the speaker dinner, and it was wonderful. Uh, she's just a fascinating, like, exuberant person. But I just was like, this person's in my Netflix. Like, on the there's a design show <laughs> um, in Netflix. And I was like, she's, she's very, very good. And I'm about to talk about garbage code. And like... <laughs> Mm. And then, like, uh, yeah. Anyway, it was it was very cool. Not your but finest anyway. speaker dinner. <laughs> well, no, it was just it was humbling, truly humbling, because she's like a great, you know, and, and, yeah, and quite a very, literally, and a very nice person who will actually talk to you, and that was very amazing. Um, not all greats are like that, uh, but then uh, you know, and then there's the play. Was it PlayStation? guy who like does all these visual arts and he's like yeah i just built something for taylor swift and i'm like right after that guy and i was like oh boy uh, oh, no. i'm gonna talk about websites so <laughs> good luck everybody <laughs> can we do the hiring thing i think we get a lot of people that listen to this show that probably are looking for jobs or early in their career or something um and and you say that it's the number one most asked about thing for you people are forever interested in what that takes and there you list off this this kind of classic thing that any of us could possibly do where you're like okay i need to hire i guess i'll just make a little like page real quick that says and i'm for sure gonna talk about how how anybody can apply for this role and our company does not discriminate in any way and please we're actively looking for 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 marginalized people and all this stuff and then it doesn't but then in the end you know you don't really follow through on that or you get you know mm-hmm. you're looking at actually looking at three candidates and somewhere in your little busted ass brain, you somehow think that the marginalized candidate is not, not going to perform as well as the other one, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of stereotypes about lowering the bar. And I use a few CEOs in the tech industry quoted in this book as saying, 
oh, it's going to lower the bar to hire someone um, who's underrepresented. And it just leaves out, yes, there are differences in equity. And when I talk about equity, I mean, uh, right, there's this graphic that's gone around for a long time. It's called the fourth box from um, the center of story-based um I'm forgetting their name. I will share the link after. It's a longer name, uh, but mm-hmm. it's called the fourth box. And there's like, here's what diversity is. Here's what, uh, or here's what. Could you what, describe it? Because it's really great. It really. Yeah, there's the equality one. And so there's three people of different heights behind a picket fence. And then be on the other side of that picket fence is a baseball game. And at the three heights, this is just like the baseline of where we are right now. Two of those people can't see over the fence. And what the graphic then goes to illustrate in the next box is the idea of equality. Everybody gets one box to stand on. And their height differences are still the same. But the taller person can see and the middle height person can see and the shortest person still can't see. Mm. Equity uh, gets into we understand that there are differences. So rather than just saying everybody gets the same tools, we want to account for the historical differences that have caused for you to not be able to watch this game. And so in the third one, the tallest person can see it by standing on the ground. Middle person can see it with one box and the shortest person can see it with two. This is less of an example about height, but more about what we are given um, or like what we're born with. And that includes societal Mm-hmm. discrimination and, and socioeconomic stuff. There's a whole lot tied to this. Um, and that's why I think more conversations are moving to equity, not just equality. And so that's kind of the, the basis of, of that idea. And that idea. one's like kind of good, right? Where you could, you, if it stopped there, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's great. We did it. Everybody can see the baseball game now. But there's another panel then that expands your mind a little bit. Another two panels, actually. Yeah, one panel is the company themselves trying to say, what does the liberation look like? But they actually leave that box when you download their their toolkit. It leaves that box blank and says, what does liberation look like? Is it removing the fence that was there in the first place? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they leave you with that question so that people start thinking about what that really means. It's great to get equality there, but that's still not enough. We're not solving the the larger issue, which is there's a fence, there's something blocking people in the first place. Right. Pretty satisfying. I've seen a version of this that has like the, like an apple tree too. I'm sure you've seen Mm -hmm. it where like, I don't know, it has to do with reaching up for the apples and getting a different size ladder and all that. And (laughs) um, yeah, it really, it it sticks with you the first time you see this image. I think it's kind of like, oh, (laughs) That's very helpful, actually. Not just in understanding the terms, but in like almost like imagining a better world. Yeah. And I think that's what they do really well is like this is a staged process. You're not going to get from zero to 100 on day one. We have to look at these different stages and assess based on each scenario where we are and then what we can do better. And where I think that comes in with hiring is what I'm trying to illustrate in that chapter is there's a lot of things, if we tweaked them along the way, assess, assess the entire process, we can account for some of these biases, do better training of the people that interview. I've seen interview processes also change while different candidates were in different stages of the process. And suddenly it's not the same experience. You're, you're assessing them on totally different things. 
Hmm. That's an issue in itself. And that's why I talk about the like pre-brief and post-brief sort of how is this going as an interview process. Can you get into that? Yeah, I think that we need to be... Uh, we need to be planning better when a role is open. It's not the role is there or we did the status quo template that the company has and we posted it. I think that there needs to be a lot more thought that goes into what the processes are. What I illustrate there is an example that I used at ThoughtBot of this is the stage. This is what our goal is to get out of this stage. This is what a good assessment looks like. This is our assessment form. And there were a lot of explanations and training that came with that. So when you were in a particular stage of the process, you understood what you need to achieve in that process and understand for the person to move forward. Right. That's a lot more work than just <laughs> this kind of like, I don't know, we posted our diversity statement. Good job, everybody. Time mm-hmm. to go home. You had to th- you thought about the process all the way through, each stage in that process being as much work or more as that initial posting was. Yeah. And I, and I think there's also a lot of assumed like, well, I joined this company. I'm included in this stage. I assume everybody else is doing the right thing. But there isn't a getting together of the group and saying, these are our goals as a whole. This is the goal for each stage. This is how we hope to get there. Do you as an interviewer have what you need to make this work? And so I think a lot more work needs to be done with hiring. There are multiple times that people have said um, that like they've come to me and had issues with hiring. And I've asked them like, are you willing to pause hiring? No. Mm. Wow. Are you willing to not open anything new and then actually roll out an updated one for each new one so that eventually everything falls under this format. Hesitation, well, maybe, but you know, sometimes our needs are just greater. And what I would implore a lot of people listening to this right now is we're in this state where there's hiring freezes across the board in our industry. There is no better time than during a hiring freeze to burn it all to the ground and start over, which a lot of, yeah. I mean, if, if I could have written that in the chapter, that would have been great. I don't think that would have been made, made my editor happy. Mm-hmm. You need a little bit more than burn it all to the ground. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, but I think sure. this is actually the best time, this hiring freeze thing that's going on. This is the best time to really take that step back and say, what are we trying to achieve here? Then you start to plan for the biases that could occur in each stage and I think that is a really hard thing for people to do because that's putting a mirror on themselves. And I think that's where we can start avoiding, like what you just said, Chris, is something I've heard from everyone. Well, we had people in the pipeline, they just, the other person just was better by a scotch. And they can't mm. tell me why. And it's because there's biases associated with that. Whether it's the school that they went to or the fact that they see someone who looks like them a lot of people won't admit that because they haven't addressed their own biases. And my hope is this is a start. This chapter is not a, this is it and it's done. This is the chapter to get you started on that. And that it's something that you have to keep working on and reassessing and reassessing over time. That was one takeaway I got from parts of your book where was like, this is always a process, right? Like this is, mm-hmm. you're going to do something, uh, eventually probably mess up quote unquote, but just, just like, Oh, that was something I hadn't considered. Right. And so now you need to like kind of realign the ship or reprogram the machine, um, to produce better outcomes. I I do have a question. Like, how do you, okay. 
hiring, right? No secret, Paravel is a company of three white dudes. We are down bad in this situation. Uh, but like, w- as we hire, you know, like, I, and I've seen people do like, like, hey, I'm looking to hire, you know, uh, marginalized people for this job or something like that. You know, like, yes, want to do that. Also, I want to avoid like tokenism. Like, don't want to be like, hey, look at the woman we have, everybody. We put her on the website to prove there's a woman here. Like, what do you, like, how do you do that but avoid this sort of like, you know, I guess that's probably a lot of cultural things to avoid tokenism. But like, how do you, how do you do that in, in, in a way that is not just checking off the diversity box. Which is what a lot of people do. There's two, I think, two parts to this question. One is to separate hiring and retention. Mm -hmm. And to be completely honest, everything that I've observed in our industry the last three years during this pandemic, actually even before that, is the hiring piece. And while that chapter and while that process is very difficult, that's why I'm saying like, that's just the starting point. If you focus completely on hiring and you do nothing to address culture, Mm. and not just culture as it appears to you, but actually build an understanding of what culture means to different people, that is a hard thing for leadership to do because that's their company. That's the place they've put in the work. That's the leadership lens. The higher you move up, the less you know about the day-to-day of the people who work at your company. Mm. And there's a lot of assumptions made of everything seems fine while there weren't complaints. That doesn't mean things are going well. For a lot of marginalized identities, we've been through enough to know when to save our energy, which is a process a lot of us learn, when it's worth being quiet or we're doing a lot of calculus in our brain of is it worth speaking up and dealing with retaliation or should I stay quiet? There's a lot more there. And so that is the retention piece is a whole other, like, honestly, the hiring and retention stuff was the longest section in my first draft that uh, my editors said, do you just want to write about those two things? Because you have a separate book in your book. Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) Um, And so I'll be sharing a lot more blog posts and stuff about that because I have a lot of spicy takes. um, And we can't fit everything into a book apart book. That's what I love about them is that they are giving you the jumping off point. Um, so there's a lot more to go into there. But the second part of that too is um, in the hiring process, I think there's just, again, a lot of assumptions and it's very one-sided. It's what will you bring to us? And I don't think a lot of companies spend a lot of time thinking about what they are bringing to that individual and what they are doing to seek out people there's a lot of, well, people didn't apply. There's a pipeline problem. There aren't enough insert, you know, identity in our pipeline. That bothers me so much because it's like, where are all the black designers? It's like Atlanta. It's kind of, <laughs> there's a lot in Atlanta. So. <laughs> That's the ultimate walk away, isn't it? If you just say that, you can just be like, well, it's a pipeline. Walk away. Pipeline. Yeah, it feels it, like it, the, it, yeah. It makes it someone else's problem. And the thing with systemic issues is everybody has to realize that they all have power to change the part that relates to their role. And if everybody did that, then the system changes. But brushing it off and saying, it's the system, I can't do anything about it, Mm. helps no one. And that's why I use a lot of very specific examples in this book. They're not 
every exhaustive example of things that you can do, but it's to show little, little things, systemic, huge, scary monster. But if you do little things and the next person does a little thing, that's actually going to move the needle forward. And that takes this whole like monolithic, scary thing away. But I do see a lot of reliance on like, oh, it's systemic. I can't change it. And it is kind of a cop out. I understand people like myself are very tired right now because we've been screaming at the top of our lungs for a long time. I'm not talking about those folks. I'm talking about people who can actually impact change, whether they're in a leadership position, whether they don't have the title but have the action or respect. There's a ton of work that can be done by a lot of different individuals. With the hiring piece, I noticed that they expect a lot of people to find their job posting. Are they going out and seeking people? Are they sponsoring um, State of Black Design, which is an amazing conference that runs every year remotely? Are they showing up for those sort of things and actually investing in their communities locally? The answer is not always. <laughs> yeah. Usually not. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, so this needle-moving stuff is not it the goal is i mean it's nice to look at the needle and watch it move mm-hmm. right but that's not the point really right that's just a measurement at the end what's the 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 point of all this is 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 your organization is going to be literally better for it right i mean there's a lot of monetary studies of why it's worth profit wise to care about diversity and i'm not going to focus on those because i think that that I understand that that Mm. would matter to some people, but that is not why we're here. I think as designers, as developers, we are building for other people. And if you're not accounting for other people, then why are we here? Why are we here? It's like the accessibility argument of like, we're doing this so we don't get sued. And some people are like, Mm -hmm. I don't want that to be the reason why we're doing this. I want it to be because we're trying to actually help people. I think of that. I use this example in the book of the airbag recalls that happened in the like late aughts. And most of the deaths that happened tied to those airbag recalls were women and children. And it's because the engineering team were all males with a similar stature who designed for their body types. And they're not taking the step back to, again, think critically about who might be in this seat. It's, it's this sort of like we design and develop for the happy path. And that's such a focus on that. And I try to on everything from day one say, OK, but what are the quote unquote edge cases? I don't even like that as a term and I don't have a better replacement. But what are all the use cases, not just the best use case? I think we would build better stuff if we were designing for all cases and not just the way we want people to use something. I think one of the most beautiful things about software is people find their own way to make it theirs. And that actually changes the product. I think some of my favorite products that I've stuck with for a long time, we've seen people use it in a different way. The company listens and then they build in those features to allow people to do that further. That's when it's like really magical. Mm. But if you're not thinking about those things at all, if you're like, no, this is how I want people to use it. This is the happy path. The the best stories I've seen of people actually being really proud of a product they're using is when there's great support and that teams are actually filtering that back in and also building all of that out from the start, which I understand not everything can be built right away. And But we would just be so much better off of, 
like half of this book is me just saying, can y'all pause for a second and think about stuff? <laughs> That's really a lot of this. Mm, we haven't built pausing into the into the, the flow at the moment, I'm afraid. Uh Netlify, you, that's where you're at at the moment. Hopefully you get to bring some of this this thinking and stuff to it. It does seem, you know, from the outside, uh, fairly well aligned to to what you're what you're talking about in some ways. I think about things like, I don't know, like <laughs> Netlify almost encourages you to, I don't know, ship websites that work at the edge and thus are are really fast and HTML by default and stuff like that. I mean, not always, but as a technology seems nicely aligned with that. How's life at Netlify? It's been good. We've been really working a lot this summer on a lot of different things and um, been a part of the team for almost six months and have things out the door, which is really exciting to see. I think in my past roles, I've been um, an educator or a consultant. And part of why I was seeking a, a product team was I've been a part of consulting product teams, but never gotten to like be a part of the whole other stuff that they can't always tell us the business decisions, the roadmaps for the whole company and how it impacts why they're working with me. And so this was to really one, take a step back from management. Management in the pandemic is really hard. Um, But honestly, that wasn't the hardest part. It was just a lot of just kind of taking a personal assessment of, I would like to step back from management for a bit. This is really hard. I also want to continue my skills as a designer and see what it's like to be an IC again. Um, Of course, uh, (laughs) I've already tried to jump into like my management hat in a lot of scenarios and have to Mm. remind myself that I am not one. Not my job, not my job, not my job, not my job. Uh, But it's created some really nice opportunities to dig deeper into the like capital D, capital O of design ops, which I've never had that in my title. Um, But to really see like that as a separate thing, which I think includes a lot of what I did as a consultant. But it's been really interesting to touch different parts of a product and not just build what I did in my last job, which was a lot of initial day zero to launch, second launch, this is, I'm joining something that is already moving. It's already been around for a while. Right. It is also a developer facing tool. So that's allowing me to continue my development skills uh, and, like, and growing in that way. So that's been super, super interesting. Just kind of up being on a product team with this pace, seeing stuff ship out the door very quickly rather than waiting till the launch period. It, there's been a lot of like learning. <laughs> Yeah, Very so it's, it's been different than what you're used to. You've jumped, you have a lot from from education to management to to now now this. I'm sure it's not your first time just being an IC or whatever individual contributor, right? Yeah, that's what yeah. The, that's what they they call it. I, I I feel like I learned that this year. So <laughs> I I am very anti acronym. In yeah. general, like unless it's HTML and CSS, I don't right. want to hear it. Those ones are cool, um, but yet yeah. I used it too. <laughs> Yeah, jumped around quite a bit. And that really is, again, an underlying thing in in the book. There is individual work in the first few chapters, then education, then hiring, then retention, which has a heavy um, management piece, leadership without the management title piece. Being a part of DEI councils or any sort of diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives and the extra work that that is because it is unpaid work that going back to the 
topic of the token person, that's another thing not accounted for in retention strategies, if there is one to begin with, is the invisible work in educating that underrepresented underrepresented mm, identities gosh. have to do on a day-to-day basis. Right. And the amount of hours that takes away from them being able to ship work that then ends up in a performance review because they're being compared to all the people that didn't have to do that extra work. Mm. And it's unpaid. Yeah. Sorry, right. Went back on a tangent there. Yeah. It's, well, no, but it's almost like a trope, right? It's like right. that that somebody, oh, we'll we'll put the uh, black coworkers onto the DEI crew, you know, and mm-hmm. and I've I've met some people who are like, I kind of don't like want to do that. <laughs> I don't know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they they just get you know handpicked, quote unquote. But it's just like, yeah, they're just like that's extra work. Thank you, mm-hmm. you know, but. Again, I think what you're talking about, equitable, if it's like their stool, if they have to do this other job, their stool for their work productivity ranking uh, is different. So if they have to do Mm -hmm. two jobs. so Yeah. A lot of those things I think are tied to also like what would it be to just build for a little bit and just work on my design skills? It is really hard for me to not want to include myself in everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, oh, I, I can... I can leadership, I can, I can make an impact here. And this is actually a practice for me too, on what boundaries do I want to have? And I think I'm exploring that through an IC role where I just get to work, work, work. That's pretty rad. It's almost like a weakness of mine, really, because sometimes that desire is so strong for me. Like, what if I just chilled for a minute and just like designed a page this week? Instead of, for example, my actual job, which is everything. Something I've really loved is the the design team that I'm working with is because we are kind of taking those steps back um, and having those deeper, like, it's so nice to just talk about button states for yeah, a nice. while and that there is an opportunity like to work on things there. There's architecture work that we're doing right now that is so exciting to me because it's, again, going back to what does a developer need to do their job? What are we putting in front of them when they have a certain task at hand? And I love thinking about that. It's not like I'm in Figma every moment of the day, but there's a lot of research work that goes into that. And it's fascinating to think about. And I think it's just mm-hmm. creating more opportunities to make the web better because this is a tool for people who build for the web. Yeah, nice. We did reten- I, I want to circle back to retention just for a second because I mm-hmm. think it would be interesting to, uh, you know, because I don't know, hiring is almost like a fancier word. It sounds juicier. It sounds like, let's fix that. When really the point is, you know, it's, it's almost equally or bigger to, to think about uh, the retention. What's something that you could really smurf up? You know, you could really, you know, you, as a company, if you didn't think about this like a mistake, a real foot gun for retention. I think the one that is... Um really sticking with me is for a long time in the leaving education and trying to look for a job that um, wasn't uh, leaving traditional education. I think being in the the code school world, uh, we we also had a startup arm, accelerator arm. So I was already in the tech world, but seeing a lot of early job postings in that while, in that time that promoted the ping pong table, the keg, I remember a certain note-taking company having um, free haircuts at your desk, 
which all I could think of was just like, I'm going to need one of those canisters to like blast the keyboard because I could just like imagine haircut pieces just all over in the buttons. Like that was, that was, that's going to be a no for me. (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't work for me either. Yeah. And I think there was just such a focus on like make work fun and what the underlying tone there is be here forever. Don't go and run errands. Don't have a life outside of this. We'll bring it to you so you never have to leave your desk. Wow. I'm all yeah. for a Friday lunch, but like catered lunch every day and all. Like, I don't know if I yeah. need those things. I think what I care. Sometimes it's extra blatant, right? Like, we'll pay <laughs> right. for your we'll pay for your, your, your dinner if you're here past seven or something. Mm-hmm. You're like, what? And, and you get a free sleeping bag. No, oh my God. There was, office. I remember <laughs> biweekly house cleaning being a thing that was offered, which honestly, that sounds nice. Yeah, I'll take yeah. that, but actually. But at the same yeah. time, I worry about why do you need to go home? We've taken yeah. care of these things for you. Um, and I think the type of things that I've been thinking about, and this is in the book, and this is pre-Supreme Court decisions earlier this year, is thinking about how people live and who they're dependent on and who's going to be dependent on them. And it, similar to this edge case or happy path, a lot of parental leave stuff is including the happy path and the happy path alone. There's a lot of, you have a kid at nine months and then you're going to take leave if you're the birthing parent. And if you're the other parent, you're going to take leave. But if it's a parent, uh, a male parent, a father figure, a lot of times that time is less as Mm. supplied by the company, or it's sort of a unspoken rule that they're supposed to take less time because they're not the birthing parent. And I think there's a problem there. I think, number one, we need to line on that. And and the U.S. has the least amount of parental leave internationally by by law and, and, and support from, from the government. The second part is not every birthing procedure or having a child is exactly the same. Yeah. There's a massive pandemic that we just have where a lot of family members of other People just became their caregivers, their legal guardians, due to those kids losing parents. That's a form of parental leave. So is adoption. And again, those are all there is a living, breathing human. What happens when there are complications with a pregnancy? There's no complication leave. You have to use your sick time and your sick time is done. There is not abortion care needs, which that can be, again, for multiple reasons. I know that that is a hot topic right now, but there are the procedure for miscarriages are very similar to the procedures of abortion. And that's not known by everybody. Mm. There could be someone having cancer and they have to choose between their own life and going through chemo or not. Like I, there's a lot of that. And I'm not trying to make this political. It's just what are companies thinking about for those quote unquote edge cases, adoption, needs parent bonding time, parent and kid bonding. Like all of those are different scenarios that we just need to think about. Those are really good points. It's kind of, I'm reminded of, is it Sarah Henderson's uh, What a Body Can Do? Is that mm-hmm. or Hendren? Um, Hendrix? I, Hendrin? I, I remember yeah. the cover. <laughs> uh, yeah, body can do, I'll, that's going to put some weird search results. Um, uh, Hendren, yeah, Hendrix. But just it's it's a beautiful book, like basically a meditation on bodies, like different disabilities, abilities, um, 
it's it's really interesting, but yeah, it's just different bodies do different things. Some bodies give birth, grow babies and give birth to babies. Some don't. You know, it's very different. Uh, and so, how do you kind of just accommodate these different body types? You know, and 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 uh, how do you kind of uh, help people who have these different I guess abilities or or disabilities or what however you want to frame that, but just how do you uh, accommodate folks or not accommodate's a weird word, but even just how do you like make it make the job the work doable? You know, um, it's it's a, that's an interesting design problem more than Dieter Rams's little uh-huh. iPod or whatever. That's so. interesting to think of them as a design problem. They kind of are, right? They're d- designing your organization. We're, we're all a design problem. I think we're just leaning on like, well, this is the mo- majority shared experience, so that's the norm. When what we should be saying is people need to work in different ways. And I remember, oh gosh, trying to remember who did this talk a long time ago and where we were. Um, But they were talking about how people access the web. And I think our instant thing is to think phone or computer. But what they were trying to break down is joystick, mouse, keyboard, touch, sound, uh, software, tab buttons. There's a whole array of ways that TVs, like devices aside, how humans interact with the web, Siri reading it out loud to you, an RSS feed that's reading it out loud to you. There's just a ton of different ways. And we're prioritizing the the majority's way, but we're not including a lot of the other ways or that we have assumptions that people can't. You can hear my stomach growling in the background. I know there's pizza Whoa, downstairs for me. Whoa, some food. <laughs> um, we're not... Really it's happy path. About. Didn't you talk about happy path design as a, you know, when we're talking about our, you know, our actual jobs of designing products and thinking about how people use the web and all that. It's, it, it seems to me that this maps onto what is it, you know, hiring and retention and what it's like to work there. They're, they're in a sense, similar problems. Yeah. And I think the thing that I would say, a lot of people will say, well, this is HR's problem. I can't change that. What I implore everyone to do is fight for the things, whether they apply to you or not. That is a way to be an ally. If you notice that your company has nothing when it comes to accommodations for interviews, you've already said, we don't want to hire a significant percentage of people because they have a type of disability that we can't even accommodate for that one hour, let alone. If if there are no budgets set aside for that thing, like whatever the accommodation may be, whether it's getting an interpreter full-time to join the company or elevator repair in that really cool warehouse that you got for your like cool design shop. All of that stuff, again, needs to be thought about. And like, if you want people to apply, you actually have to make it possible for them to work there. Yeah. And you have to train people who already work there to understand that the way they do their job is not how everybody does their job. Yeah. Yeah. I think of this little one, maybe this is a micro instance that isn't the, you know, on the, not that we should be stacking up these things against each other, but what I knew a guy who, you know, he just didn't do well around a bunch of alcohol. 
that, you know, I don't know if you, maybe he was an alcoholic or teetering on that as a problem. And, you know, maybe you don't want to hire somebody like that. I, I don't know. But it's not, you know, it's not quite the same as being not getting a job for because you're uh, uh, in a marginalized group. But still, you know, and then you apply, you know, it was like AOL at the time was like, we have keggers on every floor. All day long, cold beer, you just pour it right out of the wall. And I'm like, whoa, my buddy would not succeed at that particular job just because it, it was too there. It was too part of the culture in a way. It was almost like discriminatory you know, in, a, in a weird way I hadn't thought of before I thought of him in that situation, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of assumptions on like what makes a successful way to work. And I think we see this too with remote working versus like get back to the office. There's so many assumptions that people are just going to like be on the couch while some show is up, British baking show is on in the background or whatever. And that might be true for some people. That's not true for everybody. And I think it's that it's not true for everybody. And you actually have to, again, critical thinking, take Mm. the step back, think about the different ways that people can access a job to have certain disabilities, which again, have their own set of assumptions. People think that you can't do certain jobs, but when we look at what is covered by ADA, there's disabilities that are visual. There are disabilities that are not visual that you can't tell just looking at someone. Mm-hmm. There's disabilities that are long-term or permanent. There's disabilities that are short-term. And a lot of amazing disability advocates speak to the point of everybody should care about this because you are one car accident in a way, one freak accident, one genetic mutation away from suddenly being disabled and you're going to have to deal with that. And it doesn't mean you're instantly useless as a person. No. It just means you have different needs, right? And and that we have to just be a lot more inclusive of the different ways that people show up and all of those ways are okay. We're just so stuck in our heads of like, this is everybody's, my sh- experience is everybody else's shared experience. And that's the thing that I want people to get outside of your comfort zone and get out of that assumption and really start working on yourself first so that you can start doing this important work. Yeah. That's probably a great place to wrap it up. That was a beautiful, I was just going to say, that's the summary is work on yourself a bit, figure out that. And then like, let's, let's go fix some bigger, more systemic problems. So uh, thank you, Sam Kemp for, uh, Coming on the show for people who aren't following you and giving you money, how can they do that? <laughs> Please buy the book. It's on a book apart.com. Um, there, uh, there's the Twitters for as long as <laughs> Twitter will, will, will still be usable. I am Sam Cap on there, S A M K A P. And then my website, uh, which is going through a redesign, found some variable fonts I'm very excited to Ooh. use for the first time. They are blowing my mind. Um, S-A-M-K-A-P-I-L-A dot com. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for downloading this in your podcatcher choice. Be sure to start. Fair it up. That's how people find out about the show. Follow us on Twitter for six tweets a month. And join us in the Discord, patreon.com slash shop talk show. Chris, you got anything else you'd like to say? Yeah, I can't wait to get you back on again. And we'll we'll talk about variable fonts next time. Uh, I hope I will be better at them then, but oh my gosh, so excited about them. Yeah, pretty rad. Font, feature, settings. Uh, Shopdogshow.com. Upsize. Upsize.